Faculty of the City of Americas. Uh, my name is Parkstrom. Um, I'm teaching human rights here, and that makes it a great pleasure to uh, welcome Professor Lee Payne from Oxford University to our seminar series. Um, I know at least the students here amongst you are very familiar with uh, Lee's work, in part because I keep on going on about quite a bit of it. <laughs> Uh, in, in, in our human rights uh, teaching. Um, so uh, Lee has done extensive work in the broader field of, of transition justice, which many of you are familiar with, uh, and recently, well in recent years, done very interesting work on corporate complicity and uh, how that links into effectively um, uh, accountability processes for uh, corporate actors with regards to their um, activities during the military regimes of the uh, 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s in, in, in the Southern Cold in particular. Um, uh, but prior to that, Lee published an important study on uh, confessions of uh, perpetrators of state violence um, that I know Lee's going to actually talk about introducing her talk today. Um, but here you go in settling accounts in which we kind of advance this, this idea, challenging a bit of the kind of reconciliation. Uh, literature as to what the purpose and outcomes of, of transition justice should be, right? And challenging this idea that reconciliation is something that is, is a, a natural outgrowth or should be a natural outgrowth of, of transition justice. And argue for, for the concept of, uh, of uh, peaceful coexistence, contentious, contentious coexistence. Not very peaceful. Not very peaceful, <laughs> but nonviolent. Nonviolent. Non as an um, idea of how differing. Um, concepts of the, of the past can coexist in, in a democratic society. And that book, as Lee will, I'm sure, mention, uh, dealt with uh, uh, accounts given by um, uh, perpetrators of state violence, uh, state agents, um, and in her project that uh, she's going to talk to us about today is looking at uh, confessions and testimonies of uh, members of the armed left or the political left in, in, in Latin America and what their testimonies of the use of violence during the same period mean for our thinking about transition justice really and memory about a violent period in um, Latin American societies. So thank you very much Lee for taking time to speak to us. I know you have a came from King's yesterday and I know you're all talked up but mm -hmm. uh, over to you and look forward to your talk. Thank you and thank you so much for inviting me. I always love uh, I always love coming to London and love coming to US, UCL, so this is a great opportunity. And because this is a pretty new project, it's also an opportunity for me to get some ideas from all of you. Um, as, as Per said, it is, comes out of the Unsettling Accounts book, um, but you know that book kind of dealt with, with well, it dealt with confessions by state perpetrators and challenged the South African model that was at the time that the book was coming out and maybe still to some degree today was considered to be the way to do transitional justice. The idea that if you could get state perpetrators to confess then you would get truth and acknowledgement. I'm going to look here <laughs> instead of trying to turn around um, and that would bring about not only the dignity for victims and the acknowledgement of wrongdoing, but that was expected to lead to reconciliation. The, um, 
The Truth and Reconciliation model was used particularly or designed around the, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission and particularly the role of the Amnesty Committee as part of that. And I'm not going to go into a lot of discussion about it because it's a little unrelated to what I'm going to get into today. Um, but I just wanted to say briefly, um, fill in a little bit of what Pera was saying, is that the, what I found in looking at confessions by perpetrators of state violence in a variety of different country and institutional contexts, trials, no trials, or no truth commissions, etc., that this did lead to a certain kind of truth-telling and a certain kind of acknowledgement of harms that had been committed, but rather than leading to this harmonious reconciliation model, even in South Africa there was a kind of conflict that was generated. When you hear what people did, it's very hard to then say, let's reconcile. Right? And instead, what I talk about is a kind of uh, engagement with these confessions occurred that was quite contentious. But rather than thinking of this as negative for democracy, um, it may not lead to reconciliation, however we, we think about that, but, but my analysis suggests that it leads to a kind of um, democracy in practice, what is now called by Chantal Mufi agonism, right? a kind of agonistic approach where the idea of freedom of expression, of participation in the political process, of, that, of contestation, that fundamental values in democracy were put into play through this engagement of audiences to the confessional texts, the confessional performances of, uh, of perpetrators of state violence when they confessed. Um, I should say that I used this dramaturgical methodology and approach looking at five elements of the confessional performance, the script or what they said, the actor and acting, how they said it, right? Um, how they performed it, in other words, how they presented themselves. If you think of Goffman's presentation of self kind of approach in terms of actor and acting. The timing or the particular context, the moment, political moment or historical moment in which they presented their text and also how it was staged, the institutional stage or the media stage in which it was performed, how the media presented them um, but crucial to it was the audience and the audience engagement. Um, and so I'm trying to use this same kind of performative approach with the new project on the, uh, on the left, um, the armed left and their confessions, but I haven't found very many of them yet. So I'm going to mainly talk today about script and a little bit about timing and, uh, and a lot more on the audience's lack of engagement. So um, what I want to just, I'll say one more thing about the, the term, the term, uh, the title of the book, The Unsettling Accounts. Um, as you saw from the challenge to the South African model, the when these perpetrators spoke out, they, unsettled a kind of silence over the past. They broke that silence about the past, but they were also unsettling in their content. 
what they confess to, the kind of atrocities that they confess to, admissions to atrocity, um, were also unsettling. And I use the term accounts to suggest that these were perpetrators' versions of the past. They're not necessarily truths, right? But their truths, their their versions of their past. And so, and it's also a kind. Instead of it being an accounting, a balancing of accounts, we can think about this as an accounting. Their accounting for their past. And that means that there were a lot of different kinds of confessions. They weren't all remorseful confessions. Some of them were, in fact, heroic confessions. Um, some of them were denial. It happened, but I didn't do it. It happened, but I wasn't aware. It's that kind of denials. And so there, these are not necessarily the kind of confession that you think of in a sort of religious sense of confessing to wrongdoing. There are accounts about the past, and I use confession as a sort of shorthand rather than even though the title uses uh, accounts. And uh, you know, I, I want to continue with this idea of a dialogic process of democracy um, in thinking about this new approach to, uh, to looking at accounts from the left. Okay. So I've been on leave for a year. I've been on sabbatical. It's the best thing you can ever have in your life. But um, one of the worst things about it is you think you have this endless amount of time, right? And you start doing all kinds of things that you really shouldn't be doing. You should be finishing up the projects you didn't get to instead of not starting new projects. But I started this new project, and I didn't get very far in it. Um, but I did manage to produce a paper that I presented at LASA in, in New York. And, uh, and I was very, very nervous about presenting this paper, partly because I'd only gotten through two confessional texts. And of course, when Pear offered me this opportunity to come talk, I thought, oh, I'll have, like, I'll have all this time to produce more. I still only have two confessional texts to look at. Um, and I haven't gotten over some of my fear about, about this project. So let me lay out what my, what my concerns are for this project that I'm calling Left Unsettled. Um, a nice part of, the, of, of presenting this at LASA is my, the publisher for the previous book, um, the editor was there, and they want to, they want to uh, contract the book. So it is going to be a book. I don't know when I will get back to it. I need another sabbatical to finish the work. But I also need help from you all for ideas of other texts to include. I have some that I'm thinking of, but what I did spend some time doing uh, in anticipation of today's project is to explore what I thought might be there, and I'm not coming up with as much as I hoped. But in the, in the book, in the previous book, I did look at some confessions in Chile um, from the armed left, Luzarse, La Flaca Alejandra, um, the encapuchado in the, in, the, in the stadium. And I, they're not exactly, they don't quite fit with what I'm doing here, but I'm going to go back to them and think about others that might be included from Chile. Um, I also think in El Salvador there are some confessions that might be quite interesting to look at. Um, and I've looked at one I produced with uh, Paloma Aguilar, uh, a book on confessions in Spain that came out a few months ago. Um, and we did look at one confessional text from um, the, the 
Republican side of the, the anarchist side of the Civil War. Um, so I have a few things to go on. So why is this, why is this a difficult project for me? The first reason is it was much easier to be analytical, to be critical, to dissect and tear apart uh, confessions of those with whom I have uh, and with whom I disagree completely ideologically and whose methods I also abhor. But it's been much more difficult for me to think, and I've pretty much always studied the right, right? So that was just, I kept getting further and further to the right, uh, looking at these uh, at different actors on the right. But to look at the left has been uh, more of a challenge. Um, to be analytical, to be critical, to, um, to look into acts of armed groups with whom you might share an ideological association even though you reject the methods. So, so that's been a challenge for me which I've never had in my previous work since I could always distance myself from the actors that I was analyzing. Um, the second part is that uh, is an academic problem that I'm not finding the same outcome from the project. I'm not finding contentious coexistence as a result of these engagements with the, uh, with the confessions. So the drama that surrounds the confessions has tended to be a silencing <clears throat> rather than an engagement. So it's forcing me to rethink the model, which is never that comfortable for you after you've published a book. <laughs> uh, it's much nicer to be able to say, this is how it fits. So it's, it's good because it makes you think and challenge your approach, but it's, uh, it's not comfortable in that way. Uh, and then the third, the third challenge, which wasn't there during LASA uh, last year in New York, is that we're now in this context of a Trump world. Right? And um, you know, Trump is hearing impaired among many other uh, disabilities. He's also hearing impaired and he thrives on division. He's not looking for reconciliation or unity. And it's not clear in this world that contentious coexistence, right, this kind of engagement, is going to work to advance political projects. Um, I've found more and more that some of my friends are uh, you know, advocating a sort of you know, le armed left response, maybe in humor, but it, because I'm studying this, it, it feels very dangerous, right? You might have, this is from my Facebook page, I just had to use this as an example of somebody just saying, you know, let's take up arms, there's nothing else we can do, right? Are we in that political moment? Are we returning to that political moment where it seems like without any access to channels of uh, political participation, when there's hearing impairedness at the top, what do we do? So um, I'm going to sort of think about this in going back to some democratic theory. Um, I used this in the, in the Unsettling Accounts book, but it's taken on a kind of new dimension in looking at the, the left unsettled um, work. I, in that book, I was really arguing against the notion of gag rules that Stephen Holmes and Bruce Ackerman have um, advanced. 
you know, they, the kind of notion that repression can be perfectly healthy for democracy, not repression in terms of violent repression, but repressing speech. Certain kinds of speech can be healthy uh, for democracy. And tongue-tying may be one of constitutionalism's main gifts to democracy. So the unsettling account books really comes uh, down hard against the notion of gag rules and advocates instead this idea of unsettling accounts, engaging uh, a kind of democratization through contentious coexistence, because first it's unavoidable. If you have a mobilized population, mobilized civil society, you're going to get that engagement, um, that it puts democracy in practice, as I already mentioned, in terms of these fundamental values. Talk becomes a political resource that can be used by a variety of different groups. They have access, a variety of groups have access to that resource when they don't have access to other types of resource. And the process of contentious engagement involves this refining of political arguments, right? Making, sharpening those arguments and making them clearer and more forceful. Um, and it also allows for this identification around uh, shared values. So it's somewhat similar to Chantal Mouffe's notion of agonism as this kind of conflictual uh, dialogic uh, democracy. And the deliberative democracy school of, Jane, of Jenny Mansbridge, of uh, Iris Marion Young, um, and Sheila Benahib. Um, so this is a debate. It's a debate, you could say, within the democratic theory scholars. Um, and it's a debate that's very current right now in the world in which we live. Um, I'm also going to use this debate to frame my discussion, um, but I am still working out these ideas. And so when you know, I get to my conclusion, you'll hear more questions than you'll hear um, final comments or this tying up of these ideas. Um, and I hope to engage you in, in thinking about those questions. So I'm gonna look at two confessional texts today. Um, one comes from Claudia Hill, the other is uh, Ricardo Lace. Oh, um, they're both Argentines. They were both members of the armed left in the 1970s, uh, although Ricardo Lace was a little earlier than that. Claudia Hill was from the, F, the FAR, um, FAR and the PRT. Uh, which were smaller armed groups. Ricardo Lace was a high-ranking montonero, which um, most of you will know about the montoneros, the Peronist left, uh, armed left. They both became academics. Um, Hilb is a sociology professor at the Universidad de Buenos Aires. Lace died in 2014 from uh, cancer, but he had been a philosophy professor in Brazil where he went um, after 1976 in exile. Um, and he remained in Brazil um, until he died. Uh, as academics, their confessional texts are very different than the ones I analyzed of perpetrators of state violence. Uh, they wrote confessional texts and wove in political philosophy along with autobiography. So they're 
Um, they're pretty erudite, uh, but also very accessible in the sense of who they were. Um, I'll, I decided I should, since I wasn't sure you all read, read or know Spanish, I will put the Spanish quotes that I'm using from the, the text up here, but I'll read the English translation. You're also welcome to um, correct my translation because uh, sometimes it was hard for me to actually capture what they were trying to say, and I hope I, I did that correctly. So Hill wrote a, a book of essays um, entitled The Usos del Pasado, which is the one that I had um, up earlier in this earlier slide. And she begins this text in this way. On the 24th of March, 1976, I was 20 years old. I belonged to a generation that believed it was possible to create a just system of order. On the basis of this belief, there was killing and death. Many more died than killed. In this confession, she, oops, I touched the wrong thing, there it is, okay. In this confession, she, or confessional essay, she takes responsibility for the violence. Um, although, interestingly, she uses a bit of the passive voice in that, um, in that excerpt that I, that I showed you. Um, she takes responsibility for the left in the violence they carried out and provoked. Um, for example, in the second excerpt, she says, we ourselves fully committed, we ourselves, those fully committed to the quest for the good, had contributed to the onset of the cycle of violence that advanced the making of the catastrophe. A little indirect, but she means the, the, the coup and the, and the civil military uh, regime uh, after 1976 in Argentina. By breaking the silence over the left-wing movement's responsibility for violence, Hilb aims to create a firmer foundation upon which human rights and democratic cultures in Argentina are built. As she says, and here's the, the third quote, what responsibility should we assume, those of us who participated in the Peronist movements of the left, in which political in which political violence was an acceptable and common practice. Her expressed desire to confess in order to spark more critical thinking um, and dialogue ultimately fails. Hilb is dismissed, she's silenced by those for whom the essays are intended, meaning her, her um, colleagues on the left and also within the human rights community. Um, in a sense, she's seen as being a pawn of the right wing in promoting the old notion of the two demon theory, the dos demonios, right, where the, it was the, the armed and the armed rights, the state, the military's justification for the coup was that it had to protect order because of the le armed left, right? And so she was seen, she was perceived as being a dupe, a pawn of that kind of argument, promoting that sort of argument. Okay. Ricardo Les begins his book, Testamento de los años 70, very much like Hilbs. I was born in Avellaneda, Argentina in 1943. In the 1960s, I was a communist and a Peronist militant. 
The experience led me to participate in the armed struggle. I was jailed for a year and a half, amnestied in 1973, so prior to the, the 1976 coup, and became a combatant in the Montoneros until the end of 1976, which is when he went to Brazil and uh, where he remained in exile. Ley's work explores what he sees as a betrayal of the left's collective project for social change and social justice and its replacement with terrorism by left-wing commanders. He's very critical of the commanders of the left, not the left's project, and he's very clear on that. He contends, as the second, uh, as the second quote shows, or uh, explains, history shows that terrorism is not under the control of a single ideology. Violent action aimed at killing and producing terror with political ends is a practice that encompasses equally the full spectrum of ideologies from the left to the right. He, he, find, he concludes by saying, I conclude this essay confessing that I contributed to Argentine suffering with, I love this expression, brightly blind luminosamente ciegos, actions and thoughts. I ask forgiveness from the victims of those events in which my participation was direct. His testimony unsettled the left and the human rights community. Um, as in the case of Hilbs' text and the reaction to her text, there were efforts to silence it rather than to engage it in a thoughtful debate. Um, and there's some really interesting, you can actually go on to YouTube, there's some very interesting interviews that were filmed before he died where he's trying to um, have some influence on the, the narrative and, and continues to fail to have that kind of influence. So why are these confessional texts silenced? Why do they fail to generate a widespread debate over the past? So like my earlier work, um, we can say that they do upset a particular narrative about the past, a particular silence over the past, um, but also a narrative that's perpetuated by, and by truth commissions and trials. Um, in these narratives, the tortured, the disappeared, the killed are seen as victims and not perpetrators of violence. Um, okay, this is not true necessarily. No, we'll just leave it that way. Not perpetrators of violence. Even if the victims were not innocent of acts of wrongdoing, crimes against humanity are never permissible. This is the argument that truth commissions and, um, and human rights trials try to promote. No one, regardless of who they are or what they did, should face torture, death, or disappearance carried out by state forces with impunity. So in this narrative, what victims did is not important. It's not significant, it's not relevant. Confessions on the armed left by focusing on what they did disrupt and unsettle the narrative over the past. I interject a narrative that's unsettling. So Hilden Lace, I can't, give you the full text, um, although they're, they're accessible on internet, uh, just to kind of summarize their main arguments, they are presenting three different uh, and three separate sorts of uh, uh, claims. The first one is that the left committed terrorist acts. 
that they want that in the public dialogue. The second is that the, that the left's justification of violence, the political means to achieve social justice ends, remains dangerously appealing today. So they're not just speaking about a past, but about a present and the importance of confession for the present politics. And their third argument is that one-sided justice and memory projects in Argentina reinforce rather than combat that justification for violence. And so they're arguing for trying to bring out a fuller truth, a fuller notion of the past to combat any justification for human rights violations. So I'm going to go through briefly these different uh, arguments. Uh, first, the Left Committed Terrorist Act. The first argument, as I said before, has been criticized because it reinvokes the dos demonios theory, right? the two demons theory. Both Leis and Hilb explicitly reject the two uh, demons theory in their work, but they also reject what they see as its replacement. What's replaced the dos demonios theory is good versus evil, right? they argue. As Leis states, I don't agree with the two demons theory, and even less with that of a single demon. This rejection of the moral and political equivalency behind the dos demonios theory is based on numbers that they present in their texts and also types of violence. So Leis uses these numbers. He says a thousand were killed by the uh, the uh, Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, which predated the 1976 coup and, uh, and overlapped a, a bit in the early years. A thousand were killed by revolutionary movements on the left, and he said 8,000 by the military during the Videla uh, dictatorship. So he's saying with the numbers, we're not talking about equivalency in numbers in the extent of violence, but we're still talking about um, the, uh, the killing of innocents, in, uh, not of civilians during these periods of, by these different groups. They also both recognize the difference between left-wing revolutionary violence and the systematic widespread disappearances and killing, torture, baby kidnapping um, carried out in clandestine concentration and extermination camps by the military. There's not a, an equivalency there either in the type of violence that was carried out, so neither an extent nor type of violence. They both assert that the kind of violence used by the dictatorship cannot be justified even if it faced an armed insurrection. It had juridical power it could have used to try, sentence, and imprison these insurrectional forces. It didn't have to resort to state terrorism. Nonetheless, they argue against the replacement of the two demons theory with a narrative of the past that erases left-wing terrorism, the killing of civilians by the armed left, executing their own members for their transgressions, um, these kinds of activities occurred not only um, before um, or during, um, or, and, but also after the 1976 coup. So um, what they're saying is that they, this predated this 1976 coup, which is part of the Dos Demonios theory, but continued after the coup, um, particularly the control of certain members of the armed left. 
So they argue that during this period prior to the 1976 coup, there were political alternatives to violence. And nonetheless, violence was part of the everyday operation of, uh, of the, the left, the revolutionary left at that time. They recognize that the left paid a heavy price for these acts. They're not denying that the left played, paid a heavy price for these acts. But they argue that the existence of an armed insurrectionary left and its terrorist acts provided a justification that the military used in its coup and its dictatorship to win support. And in the effort to eliminate insurgent groups, many others who were not part of the armed left uh, had not committed violence and were part of an, uh, a left uh, or not part of the left um, that we were using political means that also faced state terror. And for these kinds of activities, Lace and Hilb feel responsible. The armed left, in their argument, has a responsibility for the violence it committed and the repressive violence it provoked against innocent victims. Okay. The second argument is that the left justified violence as the political means to achieve social justice. Um, both Hilda and Lays argue that the failure uh, of the left um, and in the human rights community to condemn left-wing violence leads to a justification of that violence and of totalitarianism on the left as necessary for radical egalitarianism. Um, this is, in their argument, fundamental to the ideology of the armed left movements. And they see the human rights community and the unarmed left as being uh, co-opted by this idea, by failing to recognize and recognizing and condemning that violence. Hilben Lays talk about how challenges to this way of thinking, even from those like themselves um, who support the objectives of the left, um, these challenges are censored. And that's their own experience of being censored by those who they hope to engage. They argue that this kind of one-sided and uncritical assessment leads to the perpetration of political violence itself, a use of violence to solve political problems. In Lay's views, it was the glorification or exaltation of violence as a solution by the leaders of the Montoneros, by the ERP, the um, Revolutionary People's Party, uh, Army, and also um, by the civil military dictatorship and the refusal to tolerate critical thinking about that violence from the soldiers and combatants and supporters that justify these terrorist acts on both sides. He sees the support, for example, of Ebede Bonafini, who is uh, one of the founders of the Madres de Plaza Mayo, the Linea Fundadora, um, as you probably know, the mothers of the, of the Plaza Mayo split and uh, the, the Linea Fundadora that Evide Bonafini headed up um, made some statements uh, in support of the FARC in Colombia, the 9-11 terrorists, and the ETA terrorists in Spain, in the Basque country. Um, she, he criticizes her for those statements as examples of the failure to condemn terrorism and to instead 
glorify it when it is used by groups whose transformative objectives one shares. So this is where he sees the danger of not condemning violence where whoever carries it out. Hilb locates the contemporary problem um, in the left's continued defense of authoritarian and authoritarianism in or totalitarianism, she calls it in Colombia. Um, she call, she refers to this as an end justifying means kinds of thinking. Violence on the left was not only defensive, as it was often viewed in narratives about the past in Argentina, they, they reject that view. It was instead a deliberate political path to bring about the, re the revolution. Failing to condemn the violence on the left is thus an acceptance that certain forms of political violence carried out by particular groups for particular ends are acceptable and other forms are not. Violence itself is not condemned, or human rights violations themselves are not condemned, but rather the use of violence by political enemies is what is condemned. So that leads to the third and, and last argument that they make around one-sided justice and a memory politics that perpetuates the use of violence as a political solution. Hilben Lace argue that holding only state perpetrators accountable in the trials reinforces the notion that it's not the use of illegal violence that's on trial, but who uses the illegal violence that's on trial. The left gets a pass in their argument. The trials institutionalize the notion that the left is innocent of wrongdoing. The motto of never again, nunca mas, in this sense, is only a condemnation of the use of violence by the other side and not a condemn condemnation of the abuses of human rights by any group, including those with whom we sympathize ideologically. Hilb advocates a South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission style model as a better way to deal with the violent past by condemning all uses of illegal violence, by allowing individuals to admit to wrongdoing in exchange for a lesser sentence and for society to unite behind a rejection of such wrongdoing by any group that uses it. Such a process, she argues, could engage society in critical understanding of the past, the wrongness of the violence on the left and the right, to avoid black and white, right and wrong, left and right, innocent and guilty uh, misinterpretations of that past. The process, she, she contends, would also lead to specific information that cannot be uh, accessed through prosecutions, through trials. Specifically, where are the disappeared? How do you find the disappeared when those individuals who know where the disappeared are are threatened to be put on trial? How do you find the kidnapped children? I don't agree with Hilb, um, Hilb's view of the success of the South African TRC. Uh, she does have a simplistic notion of how it actually worked, um, and she fails to address the refusal, for example, of the ANC to participate in it in a meaningful way. Um, there was participation, but not in the way that, uh, that it was expected that the, the MK, mainly, the armed uh, army of the ANC would participate. Hilb and Lays concur that the sort of justice system and memory politics that has unfolded in Argentina misses 
an opportunity to build a human rights and democratic culture that rejects all forms of political violence and promotes tolerance for a range of views about the past. Okay, so now I want to come to a conclusion of sorts. Hilben Lays suggests that the left has not had to account for its wrongdoing and that it should. Anything short of a full accounting by the left will fail to fulfill the goals of peace, democracy, and human rights, according to them. Uh, they contend that the silencing of the memory of violence on the left has undermined the very goals most of the left and the human rights community <coughs> aim to achieve a rejection of human rights violations, a commitment to peaceful, maybe contentious, but peaceful coexistence, and the promotion of democratic values of freedom of expression and debate. They aim and they really try to contribute to those goals by confessing to the abuses that they themselves committed, um, that they witnessed uncritically, for which they feel some remorse, and that they even supported at the time and in that context. Their goal to, to catalyze a debate or a rethinking about the past hasn't succeeded in the way they hoped. Um, we can't really talk about a contentious coexistence coming out of the engagement of these confessional texts by uh, an, um, an audience, uh, civil society, mobilized or unmobilized civil society. Um, why is that? It, it may be understandable on a few levels. First of all, they're confessing to something that's already known. Right? The silence or the lack of knowledge about the left-wing violence um, doesn't actually exist. The whole point of the dos demonios theory that was embedded in the Truth Commission, the Conadep Truth Commission report, already identified the violence on the left and on the right. So it's not that they're uh, admitting to a certain uh, set of acts that wasn't already in the public view. Now, under the Nestor Kirchner's government, the decision was made to remove the Dos Demonios theory from the CONADEP report. So it no longer is in the official CONADEP report. But nonetheless, the theory is alive and well in Argentina. Uh, in addition, there is a strong rejection in Argentina of any moral and political equivalency between the armed left and the repressive state. So while they're attempting to not have that, uh, it's not surprising that there is a kind of rejection of this narrative that seems to return to the Dos Demonios theory in some version. And there's also a very strong rejection in the human rights community of stigmatizing or re-stigmatizing victims, of demonizing victims. And the fear is that these kinds of confessions contribute to that sort of taking away the dignity of victims and replacing it with this kind of demonization. But there's another danger about opening up uh, confessions from the left that I don't think Hilbe and Lace see. I didn't find it in any of their uh, confessional texts. And this is one that really worries me, having coming, come out of uh, a study of state perpetrators' confessions. Lace and Hilb assume, like the TRC, like the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
that confessions on the left, like theirs, would express remorse. Right? That was what was expected from the South African TRC. And that would contribute to this rejection of political violence in Argentine history and culture and build this new uh, culture of democracy on the basis of rejection of human rights violations. But comparative analysis suggests that confessions on the left, like confessions on the right, are likely to justify violence rather than condemn it. Right? It is can be seen in as a way, when you look at some of the, the very few texts in the South African TRC system, it brought down, there's a heroic text about bringing down the apartheid regime, right? at being freedom fighters, and this was necessary for that struggle. This kind of heroic form of confession of violence for transformative ends. So carried to its logical conclusion, a confessional process from the Argentine armed left might reinforce rather than undermine violence as a solution for uh, transformation. The urgency of a radical redistribution of wealth and resources at this time in Argentina and elsewhere, the absence of responsible and representative political leaders with a social justice agenda in Argentina as elsewhere, the need for more egalitarian society, as in Argentina and elsewhere, might mean that the confessional or truth and memory processes for the left would backfire right, in, the, in the way that they see it. This is particularly the case as, um, as demonstrated in unsettling accounts if audiences fail to contest the confessional script and its meaning and instead accept uncritically the heroic notion of violent and armed struggle. So my conclusion with, in the form of a question or two questions in this case. In this context, maybe the global context or maybe the specific Argentine context, are gag orders justified? You know, is this sort of Ackerman-Holmes notion of keeping certain um, inflammatory Dialogue, dialogues out of the democratic agenda. It, can that ever be justified? Um, and particularly where there's a danger that this kind of dialogic engagement could backfire right, and produce less democracy, less protection of human rights. Or is it really precisely in these moments of dialogic struggle that there has to be more speech right, to be heard to mobilize in contentious coexistence, sometimes in dialogue with strange bedfellows that share certain of uh, certain political beliefs or at least certain values of democracy, is this the time that more speech will catalyze greater capacity to transform thinking and social justice outcomes? So I leave those questions for you to engage with me on. Thank you very much.